Would you please turn again in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 11. Acts 11. We've been studying the book of Acts on Sunday mornings, and I hope that it has been an encouragement to you to see the things that Jesus did after his resurrection and ascension back into heaven. Ever since, he's been calling out a people for his own possession. He's been adding them to his church, both Jews and Gentiles. It started out with only Jews, but now we've come to read about the Gentiles being brought in and how thankful we ought to be for that since almost all of us are Gentiles. But God extended his kingdom to the Gentiles to include them. And as the apostle said, he's granted repentance to the Gentiles. So if you're sitting here today believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, He has granted you faith and repentance. And you ought to be thankful for that. Well, in this chapter, beginning in verse 19, we've read of the birth of what would become one of the greatest and most influential churches in the New Testament. The church in Antioch. This church would become a hub of world missions. If you've ever looked at the maps in the back of your Bible and you've seen the maps of Israel and the several missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul and all of those arrows going this way and that, uh, tracing his steps, you'll notice that those arrows go out of and return back to Antioch. So it was a very important church. They say it existed for at least 300 years. That's a long time for a church to exist. But it was a blessed church. But it wasn't founded or started by the apostles. In fact, we don't even know the names of any of its original founders. We read in verse 20, uh, reading verse 19 and 20, it tells us how it was founded. Those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, that's the Greeks, preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord." So the hand of the Lord was with them and it grew. The church in Jerusalem now, which was the mother church, was not initially involved, but as we'll see, they soon got involved. And that's where we're going to pick up in verse 22 and we'll read through verse 24. The news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he, had, when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all with purpose of heart. They should continue with the Lord, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Now, I don't know who the ears in the church of Ante, uh, church in Jerusalem were, but We're glad they heard what was going on way up there, 300 miles 
north of Jerusalem. God was doing a work. And they took upon themselves, and it was their responsibility to find out, just as they did with the Samaritans. When they were believing, they sent a delegation to find out what's going on. Well, now they send Barnabas to Antioch to investigate this new work of the Lord. Now, he wasn't an apostle, so why did they send him? It tells us that he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Although he wasn't an apostle, he was a choice servant of the Lord and a saint in this early church. We were first introduced to Barnabas back in chapter 4, you remember, when he was singled out as one of those who sold his piece of land and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. He was a very generous man, an honest man, unlike some of the others who did the same thing uh, but weren't so honest about it. He was an honest man. Now, his, his actual name wasn't Barnabas, but Joseph or Joseph. Uh, he was named Barnabas by the apostles because it well suited his character. His name means the son of encouragement. He was also the one that came alongside of Saul of Tarsus after his conversion, and he helped him to escape and, and sent him up there to Tarsus. Well, he was a good man, and so he was a well-suited man. It's been pointed out as well that he was also from Cyprus. That's a good, wise choice then, to send someone. These men from Cyprus were the ones who got this started. So let's send Barnabas. He'll fit in with them pretty well. And he did. And so then it tells us when he came. Well, it says here that when he arrived, he saw something. What did he see? Well, he saw, it says, the grace of God. Wow, how do you see the, the grace of God? How do you recognize that? What is the grace of God? Well, it's been defined in many ways, but I think the most helpful is that grace is the undeserved, unmerited favor of God, which He bestows upon sinners who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this favor that He bestows upon them is so great and so vast that it's really hard to measure. The Apostle Paul sums it up in Ephesians chapter 1 in that opening doxology where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's talking about spiritual blessings, that spiritual favor of God. Men and all kinds of men, both saved and unsaved, experience the common grace of God when He causes His Son to shine on the just and upon the unjust. But this special favor of God, this saving favor, spiritual favor of God, is far greater and better and more extensive than the common grace of God. It involves nothing less than the free and full pardon of all of our sins. That's an amazing thing when we think of the kind of God who bestows this upon men. He is a just and a holy God. He is the judge of the earth who does right. That means He judges righteously. He judges with absolute justice. And He must be just, for He is God. If He ceases to be just, 
He's no longer holy, no longer fit to be God. But He is a holy God. And He takes sinners who have rebelled against Him in so many ways that even David, who's called a man after God's own heart, said, my sins are more than the hairs of my head. And that's probably the biggest understatement that has ever been made. Because you can count the number of hairs on your head if you wanted to. But uh, you could never figure out how many sins you've sinned against God daily. We sin against Him every day in every way. And yet, He takes our sins, it says, and He casts them behind His back. He throws them into the depths of the sea, never to see them again. Forgiveness is the cancellation of the debt we owe. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He takes our sins and He forgives them. He cancels that debt. What a blessing. Paul says in Ephesians 1, In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's grace. That God would forgive sinners in such a way, such a complete way. Full atonement. What a wonderful thing this is. This grace can be traced from eternity past to eternity future. All the way in the past, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And that grace continues all the way to glory. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. They've been reconciled to God. They've been adopted into His family. They've been given the right to be called the children of God. Now, people take that right upon themselves sometimes. They say, we're all children of God. No, (laughs) that's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus Himself said to some, you are of your father, the devil. In fact, that's what the Bible says. We're all by nature children of wrath. That's what we deserve. We deserve it. We're children of the devil. We followed in His footsteps, not the Lord's. But again, He completely forgives them and brings them into His family. They have the right to become the children of God. And they've been given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit by whom they were sealed until the day of redemption. Now, the grace of God is all unseen. It's not something tangible that you can see with your eyes or you can touch it, you can feel it. You, you, you can't see the beginnings of the work of grace in the heart of a man when God opens the heart, opens the eyes of their understanding. Remember Lydia, it says, the Lord opened her heart. Now, who saw that? <laughs> Nobody. No one saw it. She's listening to Paul preach. And the Lord's opening her heart. She's understanding what he's saying. She understands how it applies to her. And she received it. Believed it. Received Christ as her own. Now, do you see that? Can you watch it? So I see people walking down aisles in churches and at Billy Graham crusades. I remember how they'd flood for. Well, that you don't know if there's grace in every one of those is walking forward. It's something that's hidden. You can't see the beginnings of the work of grace. You can't see the conviction of sin. You can't see the need they now feel of Christ. You can't see faith reaching out to Him and laying hold of Jesus as the only hope of their salvation. You see, all of these things are hidden from our sight. However, though you cannot see it, it's something you can't hide. 
You remember the character in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. I hope you've read that. If you haven't, you should. Uh, It's an allegory about the Christian life written by John Bunyan. There was a man the name of Talkative. You remember Talkative? Uh, He's someone that Christian and faithful met along the way to the celestial city. And this man Talkative, guess what he liked to do? (laughs) He liked to talk. He liked to talk about religious things. Uh, Christian told faithful, he talks of prayer, of repentance, of faith, and a new birth. But he knows, but he knows, but only to talk of them. He just knows the talk. He doesn't walk the walk. And faithful then proposed a question to him. Let's see if we can get him to engage in some real things, some deep things. And so faithful proposed this question to him. He asked him this: How does grace discover itself when it is found in the heart of a man? <laughs> How do you see it? That's what he's saying. How do you see grace when it's found in the heart of a man? It's in his heart. How do you know? A lot of people say, you don't know if I'm a Christian. You don't know if that person's a Christian. You don't know. You don't know. You don't know. It's in their heart. But it discovers itself. It reveals itself. It shows itself. John Newton said, the grace of God is an operative principle. And where it really has place in the heart, the effects will be like the wind. You can't see the wind, but you can see the effects of the wind. You can see it blowing the trees or blowing the paper across the driveway. You can see the effects of the wind, though you cannot see the wind. Now, when Barnabas came to Antioch, he saw for himself the evidences of the grace of God in these brand new converts in Antioch. Uh, Jesus said, a tree is known by its fruits, whether it is good or bad. Now, this passage doesn't tell us the actual effects or the fruit that he saw. But we can surmise certain things that he must have seen because where grace is found in the heart, it shows certain things. Uh, Remember how Paul, writing to the Thessalonian church, he said how your faith is been spread all around. Everyone's talking about it, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Well, Antioch was a very worldly city and a very pagan city and a very idolatrous city. So many of those folks, I'm sure, were idolaters. But when Barnabas comes, he doesn't see idols in their house. He doesn't see them going off to the pagan temple. No, they're coming together to worship the true and the living God. When the grace of God comes, it changes people. Uh, Tax collectors like Zacchaeus. Remember when Jesus said, salvation has come to your house? Zacchaeus became an honest man. (laughs) Slaves like Onesimus uh, was once unprofitable to Philemon. But Paul said he's now become profitable. He'll be a good servant now. He's better than he ever was before. Why? Because he got saved. Something happened. When the God grace of God comes, it, it takes prostitutes off the street. It, drunkards become sober. Men become better husbands and fathers. Women become better wives and better mothers. Children become more obedient to their parents, more loving to their brothers and sisters and so forth. 
I don't mean that they become perfect uh, overnight or even in this life at all. But they are changed from the inside out. When grace is found in the heart, it comes out. Remember Spurgeon said, even your cat will know. <laughs> even your cat will know because it changes you. You, you do things differently. Now some have some very, uh, some very, um, uh, outward things that they hold on to which may or may not show grace. But the effects of grace do become evident. He's a new creature. Paul says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. The effects of grace become evident. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It changes a man. During the great revival of the, of the 18th century, known as the Great Awakening, there was this great outpouring of the Spirit of God. But there was also some false and spurious conversions. They weren't real. But they went along with the crowd and they looked real like everyone else. And so, Jonathan Edwards, he wrote a treatise on this, uh, this whole matter about these false conversions. And the treatise was entitled, The Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God. How you could distinguish, is it truly of God or is it not? And he gave a number of marks. He gave some negative signs and then he gave these positive signs. He says, first of all, this is what you'll see. It raises the esteem of Jesus Christ. They thought nothing of him before. Or maybe they thought uh, they heard about this Jesus and he's an imposter or whatever they thought. But everything changed now. Their thoughts of Jesus were completely different. Their esteem of him shot through the roof. He said that Jesus who was born of a virgin, that Jesus who was born of a virgin, virgin was crucified without the gates of Jerusalem. It seems more to confirm and establish their minds in the truth of what the gospel declares to us of his being the son of God, the savior of men. Now he's not just a man. He is the son of God. And what he did on the cross was the greatest thing they'd ever heard. That he died on the cross, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. He was on the cross reconciling us to God. And so their thoughts of Jesus are much different. And those thoughts become words and they're talking about it. But also, he says another mark is when there is an opposition to the kingdom of Satan, which lies, he says, in his kingdom lies in encouraging and establishing sin and cherishing men's worldly lusts. But now they're, they're opposed to that. They once loved things they now hate. And they hate things they once loved. They hate sin. And they love righteousness. That's a mark of grace. Remember Talkative? I was just telling you about him. Well, the, his answer to that question, how does grace discover itself when it's found in the heart of a man? He said, well, first, the grace of, when, when the grace of God is in the heart, it causes there a, a great outcry against sin. Secondly, and faithful said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, <laughs> one at a time. Let's look at that. And faithful says, no, 
let's let's consider one at once. I think you should rather say it shows itself by inclining the soul to abhor its sin. There's a big difference between crying out against sin in others in society, but what about the sin in your own heart? You see, when God's grace opens a man's eyes, that's what he sees. He's lost. He's undone. He has sinned against God. He sees his need of Christ. His need, not their need. It's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's me. I need salvation. Talkative asks, well, what's the difference between crying out against sin and abhorring it? Faithful says, oh, a great deal. A man may cry out against sin of policy, but he cannot abhor it. You see, he doesn't abhor it. He doesn't hate the sin. He's just crying out against it. The third mark Edwards gives was it causes men to have a greater regard for the Holy Scriptures. It establishes them more in their truth and divinity. They believe it. They believe this is God's Word. As Paul said to Timothy, to continue in the Word for all Scripture is inspired of God. So he believes that it is indeed God's Word. And isn't that what Jesus said? My sheep hear my voice. And they know me. And they follow me. A mark of true religion is a hunger and a thirst for God's Word. And a teachableness to correct my false notions. We want to take everything we believe to the Word of God. And he saw that. Barnabas saw this teachableness. In fact, so much so, as we'll read next time, he goes up to Tarsus and gets Saul and brings him back. And they stay there for a whole year teaching them. They came up from Jerusalem. These people wanted to sit at their feet and learn and listen. They know the Word of God. We're going to listen to them. And so they do. And there's also, along with that desire to know the Scriptures and believe them, they desire to obey them. And they hate when they don't. They confess it as sin. They don't excuse it. They confess it. But then fourthly, it produces a spirit of love and humility. Humility. I'm Surely he saw humility. If he came and saw a bunch of proud people who didn't want to learn, didn't want to listen, all boasting of their own achievements, he wouldn't see the grace of God. He would see the works of the flesh. That's what he see. But no, he saw the grace of God. Jesus said, unless a man humbles himself like a little child, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So they had to humble themselves to become Christians. If the grace of God was working in their hearts, humility was seen in their lives. Now again, that's not something we have in perfection, but we're growing in those things. We're growing and growing. But if it's absent completely, there's no grace. Humility is a mark of God's grace. God humbles us to show us our need of Christ, but also love. Jesus said, they will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. They will know. All men will know this if you love one another. He saw that. I'm sure he saw some measure of that love in these new disciples. They wanted to be with one another. 
even people they didn't associate with before, the high and the low, together, worshiping the true and the living God. They had a love for one another. And so these were marks of their Christianity, marks of the grace of God. Now, do others see the grace of God in you? Do they see in your home the grace of God? Do they see your relationship with your husband or your wife? Do they see the grace of God? Your siblings, are you, are you, do they see that with you? Uh, the children, do they see the grace of God? How you treat your children in the neighborhood? Do they see the grace of God with your neighbors? I once knew a couple that no one in their neighborhood could stand them. <laughs> now, I understand sometimes people, and Jesus taught, they'll persecute you, they'll hate you. But if all your neighbors have something bad to say about you, then is the grace of God really there? At school, at work, the people say at work, well, I don't see much grace there. He's always... He's always sitting down. He's doing nothing or he's he's cheating in some way. Is the grace of God seen there? Well, this is what he saw. He saw the grace of God. He saw evidence that God had done a work in their hearts. And then it tells us what he did. It says in in verse uh, 23, when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad. That's the first response of Barnabas. He was glad. (laughs) When he saw the blessed effects of the grace of God, he rejoiced. And don't you rejoice when you hear about God's done a work in someone? A work of salvation? Aren't you glad? Look at, look what God has done. He's been merciful to them. What a change. And you rejoice. Jesus said there's more rejoicing in the presence of angels over one sinner that repents than 99 that need no repentance. You show me what makes a man glad and I'll tell you what kind of man or woman he is. A godly man rejoices when he sees God's grace. John said in 3 John verses 3 and 4, he said, I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. That's a matter for rejoicing. This is what should cause a godly parent to rejoice over their children. We might see them accomplish things in sports or in business and getting a good job or at school and making straight A's. Those are good things and good things and worthy of things to rejoice in. But what about their soul, their salvation? You rejoice in that or grieve that they're not saved? The purity and sincerity of Barnabas' joy was also seen in this, that he was able to heartily rejoice in the success of these other men's labors. Imagine this church in Jerusalem. and They're the mother church. Everybody's looking to them. Something's going on up there without us. What's going on? And he goes up there and he sees what God has done through these other men. And he rejoices. That's humility that he was able to heartily rejoice in the success of other men's labors. 
There's too much, way too much jealousy in the ministry. Jealousy over various churches. This one's growing. This one's growing more. This pastor is very successful. And there's jealousy. We ought to rejoice when we hear about good things happening in other churches. They're growing. Wonderful. Praise the Lord. But not only did he rejoice, he exhorted them. It says uh, that when he saw the grace of God, he was glad and he encouraged them all that with purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. William Arnott said, Barnabas was happy but not satisfied. (laughs) The taste which he obtained, he said, of God's goodness to the Christians in Antioch wedded rather than satiated his appetite. (laughs) He saw good things and he wanted to see more. And isn't that a wonderful thing? He exhorted them. And so it says he encouraged them or exhorted them. He was living up to his name. The substance of his exhortation, that with purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. I like King James' version on this one. It says he exhorted them to cleave, cleave, hang on to the Lord. The New American Standard says to remain true. This is an admonition that's found throughout the Scriptures. Jesus said, abide in me. (laughs) Don't go anywhere. You stay right with me. Now, why does he exhort them to cleave or to continue with the Lord? Well, the ultimate test, whether or not it is a true work of grace, is the continuing with the Lord. Uh, when I became a Christian, it was back in the 70s during the Jesus movement. Uh, on Friday nights, I attended an outreach work of the First Baptist Church of West Palm Beach, Florida. Uh, it was a place called the One Way House. And it was uh, right up our alley. We were new Christians, uh, long-haired Christians, Jesus freaks, whatever you want to call them. But uh, it was a one-way house, and it was led by a man named Fenton Moorhead. Vody Bauckham actually writes of him in his book, Fault Lines. Um, he became, later became a pastor in, in Houston or near Houston. Uh, he died just uh, a couple of years ago or so. But um, uh, we met in this old, fairly large chapel on a military base. There was a lot of young people, a lot of enthusiasm, much excitement. Young people who were gathering on a Friday night. That's party night. <laughs> And you're, you're, you're gathering together to sing and, and, and praise the Lord and to hear His Word preached. Well, one evening he was talking about how wonderful and exciting this is to see such excitement in these new believers. But he went on to say that there's something that he really loved to see. He said, I'd love to see them in about a year or two and to see if they're still zealous for the Lord. Are they still following the Lord? Well, being a new Christian, I didn't fully understand what he meant at the time until I began to see over the years for myself some of those white-hot, zealous Christians slowly die down to a flicker. And then the flicker dies out. And they're no longer to be found following the Lord. And some people say, well, they're saved. Oh, that means they're saved anyway. Can't change that. They're going to heaven. 
Well, no. The Bible doesn't teach it. The Bible says if we don't continue to the end, we can't be saved. The Bible does teach about persevering in the faith. Now, we do understand and believe, and the Bible teaches that a true Christian who's truly saved and will never lose his salvation can backslide. He can grow cold in his heart and toward the things of God. He can lose that zeal. But the Bible says God's going to bring it back. God's going to renew it. God's going to renew their perseverance so that they'll continue on in the faith. But the fact is, it's not those who begin well, but the one that finishes well that really counts. It's not the one who begins the race, but the one who finishes the race. A.T. Robertson said that Barnabas understood that the glow of the first enthusiasm might pass as often happens after a revival. That enthusiasm just wanes away. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verses 30 and 31, he spoke, as He spoke these words, many believed in Him. Wonderful. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in Him, if you abide in My Word, then are you My disciples indeed. You see, you can be a disciple or you can be a disciple indeed. A disciple doesn't mean you're saved. You could be outwardly following the Lord. You can even get all excited and run around telling everybody about Jesus. But it's those who continue with Him. If you continue in My Word, then are you My disciples indeed. William Arnett said, We should not assume, either for ourselves or others, that after conversion, the time for warning and exhortation has passed. You see, they needed this exhortation. He saw the grace of God. He saw things happening. Wonderful! Praise the Lord. He thanked God for it. Now you need to keep going. You need to press on. You need to continue with the Lord. They needed to hear it. Now notice the extent of this exhortation. It says in verse uh, uh, 23, He encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. They all needed it. And we all need it. We all need the same exhortation to press on, to continue with the Lord. No matter how old we are, how long we've been a Christian, or how zealous we are or have been, we all need to hear that exhortation. No matter how long we've walked with the Lord, no matter how many great achievements we've made, no matter how stable they seem, they need to hear this exhortation. No Christian is exempt from the exhortation to continue with the Lord. Let him who thinks he stand, the Bible says, take heed lest he fall. You remember the Apostle Peter. He was sure he would never turn away from the Lord. I will never deny you. Never. And he did. Now God renewed that faith and repentance and brought him back. I have prayed for you, Jesus said, that when you return, strengthen the brethren and go and tell them to continue on in the Lord. Even the Apostle Paul, that great apostle, he said, I buffet my body and I bring it into subjection, lest after having preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. You see, we have to continue. 
it's not just you got in the door and now everything's safe. I believed, I prayed a prayer, I'm a Christian, I don't have anything to worry about. No, it's believing in the Lord, it's a continual thing. Repenting is a continual thing. Martin Luther said that repentance is a daily thing. We repent daily. That's the Christian life. We continue to believe and trust in Jesus Christ. But if you don't continue with the Lord, you drift away and you find yourself, you're wondering, is this Bible even true? Is all this stuff even true? I don't even feel like going to church anymore. It just sounds so hollow now. We need to continue with the Lord. Now notice, he tells them to continue with the Lord with purpose of heart. With purpose of heart. That's an old word which means to do something with a set plan. A determination. It means a whole lot more than give Jesus a chance. That was a, a bumper sticker back in the 70s. Give Jesus a chance. Well, I'll give him a chance see if it works. And many try it and they say, it didn't work. And they go back. <laughs> or, or get high on Jesus. Oh, they, they get all excited about Jesus and, and sing a lot of songs and cry and wave their hands around. But then that dies down. <laughs> it means that you count the cost of what it means to follow Him. People will say, well, if I, if I become a Christian, do I have to stop doing this or do I have to stop doing Listen, when you become a Christian, you're handing it all over to Him. You're giving the whole thing. You're saying, here's my life. Let it be sanctified, O Lord, to Thee. The Apostle Paul said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. He doesn't want a little bit of you. He wants all of you. And you need to give Him all. Don't sit there and bargain with Him like, well, if I, if I do this, if I, do I have to go to church every Sunday? Do I? Listen, you, you follow the Lord wherever He leads you. The world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back. No turning back. Come hell or high water, I'm following the Lord. There's a determination when you come to Christ. Now, it assumes there will be difficulties and discouragements along the way. There will be persecutions. There will be these things that seem so new, won't seem so new 40 years from now. Continue following Him. In chapter 14, it says, When they preached the gospel to that city, I believe it was Iconium, and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, Strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to do what? Continue in the faith, saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. That's why a lot of people get discouraged. These preachers are preaching and teaching that uh, it's going to be great. Your problems are going to go away. Even your financial problems and your health problems are going to go away. They find out they don't go away. They find out the Christian life isn't a walk in the park. It's a war. It's a race. It's a fight. And they need to continue in that. Continuing or cleaving in the Lord means to firmly trust Him. Leaning not to your own understanding or your own righteousness, your own strength to persevere. You don't even trust that you can do it. 
I say you do it with determination, but you know it's not in you to do it. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. But the Bible also says, through Christ, we can do all things. Through Him, we can. I love how John Newton put it. Through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. His grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. It's not only the trials and the tribulations, though, that can pull us away. Even times of peace and prosperity. Those are dangerous times when the world's being nice to you and promoting you. I think it was the delectable mountains in Pilgrim's Progress Isn't that where the air sometimes makes the Christian grow drowsy? Things go so well and so easy. We forget our need of Christ. We we forget that the devil is still going about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Cleaving to the Lord will take a lot more than living by feelings or emotions. It means to continue trusting in the Gospel and the finished work of Christ. Trusting Him as your only hope of salvation. You need to trust Him firm to the end. Come what may. What falls you may have. What sins you may commit. You you repent of them and you cleave to Christ again. John says... If we say we know I have sinned, we're deceivers and we make Him a liar. We're liars. But He said, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So go back again and again and again and never get tired of going back to that mercy seat. Never get tired of going back to Him and crying out, have mercy upon me. Never get tired of being that publican. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. We need to continue in His Word. Jesus said, abide in My Word. If you abide in My Word, you are My disciples indeed. Someone said, one abides in the Word of Christ by making it the rule of one's life. Obedience is the same thing as abiding in His Word. It's following it. Not just studying it or quoting it, but believing it and living it. Paul told Timothy, remember Timothy was his son in the faith. 2 Timothy 3, he says, You must continue in the things you have learned and been assured of, knowing from where you have learned them, that from a childhood you've known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation through Jesus Christ. You see, he said, continue. Continue all the days of your life. Continue and preach it to others. They're going to get tired of it. They're going to turn away their ears from sound doctrine. But you don't let go. And in our day, churches throughout the country and throughout the world are neglecting God's Word for excitement and for entertainment. But we need to hang on to the Word of the living God. 
We need to continue trusting in Him for His grace and for His strength. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 1, 12 and 13, I know whom I have believed in and am persuaded that He is able to keep which I have committed to Him until that day. And His next breath is hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from Me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Hang on. Hang on to Christ. Hang on to His Word. Hang on to your purpose in life is to know Him and love Him. This is eternal life that you might know Him, the true and the living God, and Jesus whom He has sent. If you're not a Christian, well, you can't continue. You have to begin. You have to turn from your sins and believe. He does that work of grace in your heart where you begin to see, I I need a Savior because I'm a sinner. And He came to save. And I believe on Him. I'm going to follow Him. I'm going to turn my life over to Him. I've messed it up plenty. But He's promised that if I come to Him, He will not cast me out. You come to Him and you continue with Him. That's the Christian life. Come to Him and continue all the days of your life cleaving to the Lord. Let's pray.